Fantasy Animation is a completely free, online, educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. It is staffed by a volunteer army of academics and animators who give up their time to run the website so that our audience can be kept informed not just about the latest goings-on in the world of all things that are drawn, imagined and sculpted, but to help inform them about the historical, political, ethical and aesthetic ramifications of what it means to make an animated fantasy. Check out our weekly blog posts containing insights on everything from the sexual identity of Spongebob Squarepants to how to make an animation on a pair of knickers. You can also access our archive of podcasts featuring Oscar-winning VFX supervisors, historians, classicists, animators and folklorists discussing their favourite examples of fantasy animation. To find out more, visit us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Reddit at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research, or visit fantasy-animation.org. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello listeners and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Sargent. So this episode, as will become clear, is a real treat in that we have not one but two special guests on the podcast to chat uh, about the 2002 Disney Cell and partly digitally animated uh, sci-fi space fantasy Treasure Planet, the studio's 43rd animated feature film uh, and an adaptation of Stevenson's 1883 Adventure of All Treasure Island. Now, obviously, there's lots to say about the film's relationship to technology, uh, perhaps the central place, too, of, of digital imaging within Hollywood's post-millennial industrial landscape, alongside, of course, its identity within the Disney canon. And we've spoken before on this podcast uh, about Disney's critical history and our episodes on The Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, Hercules uh, and The uh, Emperor's New Groove. Uh, Alex... Talk to me about Treasure uh, Planet in, in space uh, and space fantasies. I've got lots to say about exploration. I've got a lot to say about folklore. I've got lots to say about pirates, but I actually have very little to say. I think we should just get on with the guests today, Chris. Absolutely. Um, joining us to talk about the spaceships, uh, supernovas and cyborgs of Treasure Planet are the film's directors, Ron Clements and John Musker, who aside from writing and directorial duties on Treasure Planet, uh, are known as a filmmaking duo especially central to Disney animation uh, in the 80s, 90s and into the 2000s. They're the writers and directors of the uh, Basil the Great Mouse Detective, uh, The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, the first film I saw at the cinema, uh, Hercules, as I said, we've done an episode on that, Princess and the Frog and Moana, a film I know Alex is hoping we might touch on. Look at his face. Um, this is not to mention to their creative contributions to a number of other popular Disney animated features across character, story and even voice work as well on shorts too. Um, Ron and John, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the spectacular futurism of Treasure Planet. Well, thank you, Alex and uh, Chris. It's great to be here. And uh, I'd say good morning, but in the UK, it's an evening. So, And who knows when you're going to put this on the air. So it's uh, <laughs> I did, good, good day, good day. There is no time, no time and space here. Exactly, exactly. So, so just to, to kick things off, um, I'm, I think somewhat unusually, I'm going to turn straight to the film because it begins, and I was saying this to Alex before we started, begins with a prologue and then jumps to 12 years later. So given it's 2002 release, I guess this places the prologue 
in the late 80s, which from what I understand <laughs> is closer to the origins of the project uh, and perhaps when you first pitched it as a potential Disney feature film. Um, Good so segue. I was, yeah, Good segue. well, you know, um, it's not my first rodeo, he says. Yeah, so, okay. I mean, yeah, I just, yeah. just uh, <laughs> I wonder if you could give our listeners a sort of a bit of a flavour of, of sort of where the project came from. Obviously, Disney is known for sort of taking its, its features from a variety of sources and I think particularly in this sort of late 90s early 2000s period where it was really diverse in some of the the films that it was making but in terms of of treasure planet where where is the where is the origin well well it it sort of began with me and it it actually began um i would say when i was a kid um i was um a big fantasy fan but particularly i was a big disney fan and i was a big science fiction fan and 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 even as a kid i was thinking it would be interesting to combine a Disney-esque sort of feel with uh, with uh, sci-fi, but how to do that? Because Disney seems like everything is timeless, and that's a big part of what uh, what Disney Animation was to me. Um, of course, I I started working at Disney in 1974, and I, I kind of had that around in my brain. Um, then the way it began. Um, and there again, John's better at dates. I would say it, there was a, when Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg came to Disney, and the year was John, nineteen eighty four. They uh, Michael Eisner started in the fall of nineteen eighty four, and they brought this technique with them called the Gong Show, which was a thing they had used at Paramount Pictures, where uh, directors and writers would pitch ideas to them, and in a very you know superficial elevator pitch, two line sort of way, and. They would either say, hmm, it sounds interesting, or gong, forget it, next, we don't want to do that. So there was one in January. The first one we had with them was in January of 1985. And Ron, take it back. This was, yeah, this was the very first one. And they met with a group of us, like directors, story artists. Yeah, there were, there were probably about a dozen or 16 of us around a table. It was uh, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, and there to hear our ideas. And, well, they said... We want you to go out and find five new ideas for animated features, and we're going to reconvene in two weeks and, and pitch your ideas. And I and I, the, I tell the story a lot about going into a bookstore and reading uh, Hans Christian Andersen's *The Little Mermaid*, and um, and being intrigued. And and I wrote up a two-page treatment of *Little Mermaid* that made the witch a villain and gave it a happy ending, etc. But I also wrote up a two-page treatment called *Treasure Island in Space*. Um, which was this is my idea of combining Disney, a sort of classic retro feel with uh, with um, with sci-fi and fantasy, with robots and aliens and spaceships. Um, the idea came before Star Wars, but but yeah. of course, when I saw Star Wars, it's like this is this is this is exactly a kind. Of, this is this is Disney esque, very Disney esque, and totally, totally, yeah. So it was like, is this still is this still relevant now after Star Wars? And that's a good question. But I did write up the treatment when I pitched the Little Mermaid. <laughs> first, they went around the table. They said, "Pitch your best idea," and I pitched the Little Mermaid. Well, because they were late to the meeting and they, they didn't have time to hear all the ideas, or maybe it was a, a way of trying to winnow it down to the, the 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 best idea that you had. But yeah. So they said, "Just pitch your best idea." When they got to me, I said, "The Little Mermaid," and it immediately got gonged. Um, because uh, they said they were developing um, a sequel to Splash, and 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 it was similar. Uh, but it, Mermaid got ungonged a couple days later after Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Casper. They read the treatment, they got back to me, and they put it in development. But at the meeting, they asked, mm-hmm. "So, um, 
So what's your second best idea after they gong Little Mermaid? And, and I said, Treasure Island in space. And I got gonged a second time. <laughs> yeah, I think he's the only person at that meeting that got gonged twice. So he's, he has a special <laughs> uh, badge of courage that he has from that. Yeah. There were a lot of gongs at the meeting, but uh, but a couple of things actually went. But, but they actually, the reason they gonged it, uh, they, had, they had just come over from Paramount studios where, where they were Michael Eisner was the head of Paramount Jeffrey was working for him and they said the plot of the next Star Trek movie was was basically Treasure Island in space now the next mm-hmm. Star Trek movie when it came out was the movie where they went back in time to save the whales which is not Treasure Island in space in, in any way so I don't know exactly what they were who knows? Maybe it went through some radical changes. At any rate, that got gone. Little Mermaid got going, but Treasure Island in space went away until Little Mermaid was finished. And while we were working on Aladdin, developing Aladdin, um, the head of development at that time, a guy named Charlie Fink, walked into our offices one day and he said, we're looking for ideas with pirates or we're looking for science fiction ideas. You know anything with pirates or with science fiction? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, and then I got the two-page treatment. I sent it to Charlie, and he read it. Yeah, yeah. We, and I, I think he he passed it by Peter Schneider, who was um, who was our boss at that time. Um, and I assume Jeffrey Katzenberg sort of knew about it too. Um, and it it went into development while we were while we were developing Aladdin. We were also developing Treasure Planet, and the original idea was that we were going to do Treasure Planet after Aladdin. That was always the plan. Um, and even when um, when uh, we got in trouble on Aladdin and we needed a lot of help r- with writing it, and we brought in uh, Ted Elliott, Terry Rossio, who further later in their careers um, did the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, and Shrek, they worked on Shrek, and, um, and before this had written a script for Princess of Mars that we liked. Uh, we worked with them very closely on, on, um, on, on oh, Aladdin. Yeah. And, and always during that, we talked about uh, Treasure Planet, and they had ideas, and we had ideas, and we even had visual development going on. Um, and um, after we finished Aladdin, and Aladdin certainly was a hugely successful film, for whatever reason, um, when we re-met with Jeffrey Katzenberg and kind of pitched our version of Treasure Planet, he had cooled considerably to the idea, and he just didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and we were very disappointed and I think we spend a certain amount of time trying to get him to come around. I don't know, John, you want to. Well, there was this. a classic. So, yeah, we and even inside in development too. Tom Schumacher, who ran the development department, seemed very cool to the idea. I think he didn't. I, I mean, he was more of a musical guy. This in theory was not going to be a musical. So it was appealing to us to do something sort of different, you know, and, and off the track. But uh, its difference now at this point made it uh, possibly unappealing to to Jeffrey and then Jeffrey never totally articulated why though I think having a male protagonist having one that that was young all those things I think may have been negatives so he was cool we and so we started having to having these meetings where that we were sort of uh trying to they really wanted us to turn it into something other than what it was so there was a version that where it sort of became King Solomon's minds in space and there was a version like this and that and then we had a meeting with Jeffrey uh, when we were promoting Aladdin in Europe at, at uh, Euro Disney, I think it was called then Disneyland Paris, and we and, <laughs> and so we had a, a a meeting with Jeffrey. Well, actually, we 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 really we had a thing around a table actually earlier that junket where Jeffrey was with all of us minions, 
who are the directors and writers of various films and stuff. And, and he had kind of gone around the table saying how much he liked everybody's project that was in development. And at that time, they were considering Aida. Aida, I love it. Pocahontas, it's going to be great. Mulan, I mean. But he's had not, not, a, not a word to say about Treasure Planet, which scared us. Like, is he, is he even really going to make this movie? You know, it just seemed like we were on very thin ice and all that. So we had dinner with Jeffrey that night in this restaurant in Euro Disney where he was going to uh, ostensibly, uh, we just wanted to challenge him and say, hey, you know, what's going on with this? So again, uh, Jeffrey uh, said, you know, why don't you take it and make it Romeo and Juliet in space, you know? And and Ron, it was just me, Ron, and Jeffrey, and Ron blew up at that thing. In the meantime, all these journalists from around the world are at the restaurant, and, you know, there are there are these walk-around characters from Euro Disney who are on stilts, <laughs> and they are like mimes. And so while Ron and Jeffrey are having this heated argument, these mimes are coming by and patting Jeffrey on the head and Ron. And I'm just sitting there watching this back and forth. No, it's this. And, and it was the most I mean, surreal encounter ever. But, and so Ron can articulate what you said to Jeffrey. Yeah. I mean, it's true. And, and I do not normally blow up. I'm, I'm a very quiet, a very, very introverted person. Uh, I had never, ever certainly blown up around Jeffrey. It was totally uncharacteristic. But when he said, what about Romeo and Juliet in space? I said, like, Every one of these things doesn't have to be Romeo and Juliet because at that time Pocahontas was Romeo and Juliet, Aida was kind of Romeo and Juliet, and and I think there were a couple other things. And it was like Jeffrey was on this track, and and it was like, and he was also, and Hunchback was was, was going, and it was like they they were very live action oriented to my, to my way of thinking. I mean, John and I were always with all the films we did, and it's got harder and harder as things went along to find sort of animation hooks and to come up with something that we felt like would work better in animation than it would in live action. Um, and um, anyway, I got mad. Jeffrey got mad. He, he was yelling at me. Uh, but then he t had a phone call and he left. I took a phone call. He came back. He had cooled down. I had cooled down. And it was sort of like, okay, you got me. Yeah, because Ron had said, you know, all the films you've got on the slate, they're too much alike. This would be different. And he's like, okay, yeah. You kind of hit me there. You know, you kind of tagged me with that one. All right, so let's let's uh, let's take this over. Okay, when we get back, we'll we'll sort of pick it up again and we'll see what we can do with it. So, so he he sort of said, okay, you can kind of pursue it again. It's kind of a long story, but try to make it a little shorter. We 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 worked very hard again to pitch it. We had a major pitch um, where we went all out to try to sell it to Jeffrey. Michael and Roy Disney were also in the room along with Peter Schneider and Tom Schumacher. Um, and we had visuals. We, we, we pitched the story. We, it was a very passionate pitch. And then we waited to hear the result. And the result was mixed. Um, Jeffrey said, okay, okay, you can do Treasure Planet, but not as your next film. I want something else as your next film. And, um, but you can do Treasure Planet after that which led to Hercules, which was a project that we saw that was in development that really appealed to us. And so we said, we'd like to do Hercules. And Jeffrey was like, cool, Hercules is good. And we started developing Hercules. And right as, as we were developing the story and writing the script, Jeffrey left the studio and um, he quit and, um, and formed DreamWorks. Um, oh. and, uh, and then there was a big competition for animation talent and Michael oh. Eisner met with us uh, at the time, because he was re really worried that we might leave uh. the studio and said that, uh, I love Treasure Planet, and I've always <laughs> loved Treasure Planet. And basically, um, 
basically I want you I want you to do this right after Hercules and and he he was he was really really high on the project um, and uh, and that's kind of as how how Treasure Planet got going and and after we finished after we finished Hercules then we we began we began Baking actually um, yeah. developing wow movie and making the movie could you give us a hint at the various iterations it went through through that period? Did it start as something very different? Did it, it sounded like it became everything in space at one point. Uh, and, and then kind of what has the film got as a legacy because of that gestation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, through those iterations, generally they were just little pitches and treatments, not extensively developed. Hmm. Ted and Terry actually wrote a script before I rewrote a script uh, because we were burned out and everything. And they really wanted to write a script. We said, well, go ahead. But, this was after Aladdin, right? And we, we really had not uh, um, done that ever before, where we, we really uh, had someone else write a script before we did. But we said, go ahead. But we gave them very little input. But out of their development, um, they created, I think, Captain Amelia was one of the things, although she was bird-like, I think, in their version. And, and uh, they had various ideas, the idea of the moon-shaped uh, uh, spaceport, you know, that was a Ted and Terry idea that grew out of that. But basically, that was... A script. So when we got free to write our own script, we we used a few elements of theirs, and then we we the first real script we wrote, it was not unlike the film that resulted that you saw on the screen. I mean, it went through changes, right. but relatively. But, I mean, but throughout all all the development, it was always basically Stevenson's story, and yeah. and um, and those other things were things we were not supporting. I mean, we were reluctantly like like um, King Solomon's Mines. It was like. We didn't want to do King Solomon's Mines in Space. We didn't want to do Romeo and Juliet in Space. Um, the other film that Jeffrey was pushing just was Princess of Mars. He really wanted us for a while at first to do Princess of Mars instead of Treasure Planet after Aladdin. And um, that could have happened, I think. But but actually, then uh, Princess of Mars fell through. Uh, they lost the rights at least temporarily, but we really didn't want to do Princess of Mars. We wanted to do Robert Louis Stevenson's sort of classic story. I think the idea that we basically pitched was that the classic, the idea of a classic um, story, sort of, sort of anchored it um, and gave it gave it something where we could we could really have fun and explore lots of ideas. But we had that basic Long John Silver, Jim Hawkins, the search for treasure. Um, um, that was always there. That was always, always the centerpiece. Um, yeah, for a while when, um, I, we should go out of this, but, but when, uh, when Jeffrey was really pushing princess of Mars and this really bugged us, he was saying, yeah, you should do a classic princess of Mars is a classic treasure Island's not a classic. That's not a classic. Are you kidding? Treasure Island is one of the most classic adventure stories of all time. It may be the greatest adventure story of all time, but yeah, we got into a lot of back and forth. Of course, in retrospect, in terms of what happened in the movie, Jeffrey may totally have been right, but we had, we were, um, it was like a dog with a bone. I think that, that just, um, we wanted to do it and, and, um, and we got to, we had the additional challenge that Tom Schumacher, who really was running the department with Peter Schneider, he was running development. Peter was running the department in the wake of Jeffrey. You know, he didn't really care for the project all that much either. So within the development of the project, among the things that was pitched was, why don't you do the movie, but do it from the point of view of Silver, you know, just turn it on its head that way. Or why don't you have Jim Hawkins be African-American 
and uh, or uh, you know, and there were a bunch of sort of or a girl, or a girl, or a girl, yeah. And there were various things that were pitched that would move it away from Stevenson, uh, sort of. And uh, we resisted those. Give Jim a romance, give him a girlfriend, yeah. and have that be kind of the centerpiece of the story. We didn't want to do those things. I mean, maybe we should, but we wanted we wanted to do this this basic um, hero's journey. I mean, it certainly is a hero's journey, a coming-of-age story. Um, the one idea that, that um, really kind of took hold um, once we got going that wasn't there to begin with, and it was not our idea, it was actually Joe Ramp, um, legendary Disney story man who died tragically um, when he was, what, about 40 years old, um, I think it was 45. Yeah, it was 45. Uh, one of the key guys at Pixar that, that did so much Pixar, but also Disney. Really, really great guy. And he had he had read our our treatment. Um, um, yeah, I think before we ever wrote a script. Uh, and and uh, originally we had Jim Hawkins much more like he was in the book, um, that he was kind of this courageous, young, noble lad, um, um, pretty, pretty, much a straight arrow all the way and um and it was joe's idea to make him a troubled teen uh someone um uh, w with father issues and and uh and 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 uh, we sparked to that and um i certainly sparked because for me i i grew up without a father so the idea of of looking for a father figure always searching for a father figure appeal i mean it's that's in the original story but i think with this idea we could play that up much more, and the missing piece idea. I mean, Ben has his missing piece, but and and Silver certainly has his missing piece. But that Jim, Jim has this critical missing piece that is his father. That he. The, the, the other thing from pretty early on was the whole idea of you know sort of galleons in space. I mean, the romance of it seemed more Disney esque to to do you know a, a wooden ship sailing in space, and we had to create a world where we thought we could make that believable, but. We really didn't want to do something where people were wearing helmets in space. We wanted the romance of the open sea. So we tried to create this idea of the Ethereum, which was something. And it was meant to be a fantasy. It wasn't our world, you know, 20 years in the future. It was all a fantasy universe where such a thing was possible. It may not have been clear to the audience, but that is what we were going for. Yeah. I, reading reviews and reading comments, I'm not sure it was clear to the audience. I, I was pushing... Um, even late in the game, and it's kind of a Star Wars thing to have a have a title at the beginning of the movie that, that said like uh, another time, another place, another universe. Just to clarify, um, I thought maybe it was clear, and I think it was that, that this was not the future. We never intended this to be the future. It was a parallel sort of fantasy world where there actually was an Ethereum where you could breathe in outer space, where creatures actually could fly around in outer space. It was kind of taking the idea as if Stevenson might have written a science fiction story at the time um, to give it the, this retro thing so that all the futuristic elements were envisioned kind of in a way as if um, as if a 17th century uh, civilization had, had a technology that was way beyond uh, anything even we had in, in the 1900s. Yeah, there was something that appealed to us about the opposite of modern life and its miniaturization and all that, that you, where you have a, a tiny little thing that does an amazingly complicated thing. We wanted to go in the reverse. You have a great big thing that is doing some small little task, you know, that uh, is sort of the flip of what normal technology is almost. And uh, 
we had this rule on the film, and, and maybe people have heard of this, but it's called, originally it was the, well, we called it the 70-30 rule. Originally it was 60-40, and then we pushed it to 70-30, which was basically 70, it's always, with everything, it's 70% the past, 30% the future. There again, to keep it anchored in that, um, that retro universe. I mean, it was kind of steampunk before steampunk, but I think we just love that kind of Jules Verne kind of uh, future where um, where there's this ornate technology that it just seemed cool. And in many ways, you're doing what the novel did originally in that for an audience when it was written, that, that is, it's as close to a science fiction novel as you're going to get for a novel at the time. And it's a story of, you know, high seas and, as you say, this proto-adventure story. And so I, I, I'm, Chris is going to ask you so many questions about CGI and, and integration, things like that, that I'm just going to have to let him uh, sit there for a second. Because I just, my question okay. sort of I really want to ask you guys was, if you look at all your sort of filmmaking career, and I think Treasure Planet is a great example of this, you seem very attracted to telling stories that supposedly the framework of which people already know. So, you know, whether it be Little Mermaid or Aladdin or, right. or yeah. Basil the Great's right, right. mouse, dete- yeah. mouse Detective, right, which is essentially uh, Sherlock Holmes w- yeah. with mice, uh, but telling yeah. it in a way that right. kind of <laughs> makes you both appreciate the original and see it differently in, in a new way. I mean, do you... Do you recognize that in your work, and 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 why why are you attracted to that kind of sort of storytelling? Yeah, yeah, we we've never actually done an original story. Moana might be the closest mm. to an original story in that Moana um, doesn't. She we made up Moana. She um, there there is no Moana, but Maui certainly exists in the legends of the South Pacific. So that's still kind of taking something. Yep that was there. I think it, um, it's really a part, a little bit, I think, of what Ron was talking about with the 70-30 rule in a way. But I think for us, hmm. there's always something appealing about, do, you know, that again, you have an anchor. You have sort of an anchor of a story that is a classic, has been proven out over years and years, but you find a way to tell it that's never been done. And so you get you get the novelty of the approach, but you get the, the meat of the whatever the issue was that made this last all through these years, whether or not it was Little Mermaid, you know, the the story of, you know, independence and a clash with your parents and that sort of thing. I I think even with the pitch, uh, uh, part of our pitch was something old and something new, um, that there's, there's, to us, I think, just something appealing about something that mixed uh, something old. Yeah, it's almost like if you have only something old, then that may seem cliched or tired or it's been done. If you only have something new, that may be hard for the audience to absorb because everything is new and you're trying to get, where do I fit into this thing? But the blend of those things to us is just appealed to us, I guess. And it, and it gives us a chance to, what is a spin that we might put on this material that is not like what anyone else has done necessarily. It, it's tailored to this and it becomes sort of our version of that and it takes on a life of its own. Just on that on that note of, of spin, then exactly as you as you were saying, and one of the first things you yeah. said actually was uh, this kind of Disney esque story or Disney esque as a descriptor plus a bit of sci fi, and then you also yeah. talked about the sort of the yeah. classic retro feel to the film, then also matched to that classic classic literature, and so. And this struck me actually when one of the characters, Doppler, says at one point, familiarity breeds contempt. And I thought, that's a nice way of thinking about what Treasure Planet might be doing or (laughs) thinking about doing with regards to a kind of quote unquote formula. And so I really 
what I wanted to, to sort of, and obviously, you know, within a- academic studies of Disney, the formula is this big thing that we're all obsessed with. But actually, I, I just wondered when making a Disney feature, and given that you, the genesis of the film was so far back, and you'd made or ended up making three films between the original idea and and and, and when it sort of began production, yeah. um, are you sort of conscious of of Disney, other Disney films, including the ones that you are currently making, as being reference points. I.e., that works really nicely in the films that we are making. This works really nicely in some of the the, the films we're inspired by. Um, or was it was it sort of you know science fiction? You mentioned Star Wars as well, and so I'm just thinking about your the the the, the need to balance science fiction as a genre cinema with its tropes and its sort of you know um, fantasies uh, with okay, this also needs to have, or maybe it doesn't, but needs to have one foot in the recognizably Disney-esque camp. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, like I say, that, and what is Disney-esque, I guess, so the, you described that, but it, it's, there is a sort of classic timeless, classic timelessness that, that I think of as being Disney-esque. Certainly characters, um, uh, great characters, entering a world that you've, you've never been before, and 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 it, getting that wonder of a sense of of creating a, a, a brand new world in this case a, a brand new universe, and I would say for us the idea of having both caricature and comedy in these things, it sort of goes with the territory for us a little bit that we wouldn't mm-hmm. just our own sensibilities we wouldn't want to do something that was so straight and so uh, you know devoid of comedy it just wouldn't wouldn't play to our own strengths and our own sensibilities so so any piece of material we're we're looking for that and and. I am a caricaturist. I do caricatures, but caricature is part of Disney. Really, it's taking what you observe in real life and making it bigger yeah. or broader. Or the other idea of caricature, which is you you winnow away all the extra stuff and you get to the essence of something. You distill something. And so uh, this was our. And again, because these movies take so long for us, it's like we're probably not going to make six science fiction films. This is going to be our science fiction one. Mm-hmm. So what do we want to put in this one? Because I was a fan of science fiction as well and read a lot yeah. of that. I was not. Quite that Ron, you know, has is like a Star Trek maniac, a Trekkie, whatever. Where he's got, you know, he's got the the pinball game or the <laughs> arcade game, and he's got the artwork from the thing. And he's got it's not true. It's not true. <laughs> For the benefit of listeners, Ron now appears to be holding up what seems to be a Star Trek communicator. He's got he's got a he's got a Captain Picard and a Captain Kirk costume in his closet. No, I don't. He's he exaggerates that tremendously. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, I don't at all. But <laughs> um, I was not that. But uh, but I I read you know Asimov and Heinlein and all that, and I and I love mm-hmm. science fiction and, and Ray Bradbury. Uh, and I think the idea of doing something for us that was against the grain of what was going on, you know, there wasn't an action adventure story. It was not a musical. It had a male yep. protagonist. In our mind, all those things were pluses, just because it was something mm-hmm. different for us. And so also, uh, I would say uh, that. But, um, we were coming off um, after Little Mermaid. We did Aladdin and we did Hercules. Both those films, in yeah. our minds, were comedies. They were that is, there's comedy in all those films. There's a lot of comedy in The Little Mermaid and comedy in other films. But those films, the comedy was pushed to the extent I would say that the comedy was was kind of one of the most important things about those films, and the tone was very very comedic. Treasure Planet was conceived a little straighter, um, a little straighter than mm. those, a little more yeah. kind of um, the story takes itself just a little more seriously. So we're at the, I guess, if, the, if we're using Chris's analogy at the beginning of the first questions, the prequel, we're now, I guess, arriving at the ship and about to go on the adventure because you're about, <laughs> you're about to sort of start no, this behemothic kind of journey that you, as you say, 
that is making a feature film, but also that you've been sort of preparing for for so long. What are the early, you know, challenges you can remember or, or, or quick decisions you have to make about how this thing's going to stay afloat? I mean, one of, one of the things was uh, that we wanted to uh, move the camera, although it's going to be a hand-drawn film, we felt like in the age of James Cameron, we wanted to be able to move the camera on the Z-axis as well as the X and the Y because it was an action-adventure film. So they had developed deep canvas, this technique for Tarzan, where they really put rendering on dimensional sets. Uh, and so we very, pretty early on, I think, felt we both loved N.C. Wyeth and his sort of very seminal illustrations for the book. And we felt like this should be a warm N.C. Wyeth universe, but one that you could move into the picture plane on, even though it's hand-drawn. So very early on, uh, we had Eric Daniels and other people who were involved in deep canvas developing almost an oil-painted NCYF look to really get the romance of sort of, you know, getting all that going. Likewise, we we thought, you know, in this version, Silver was going to be a cyborg, so that meant uh, we were going to somehow try and combine hand-drawn animation with CG animation, but we, and it was, we were really, we got a lot of pushback on that because it was almost like you were doing the same character twice in terms of complexity. There was a hand-drawn element to it, and then there was a CG element to it, and it took longer to get through the production pipeline. We also cast... Glenn Keane to do Silver. Glenn Keane was really, in some ways, the star of the studio. Great. We had worked with him. He had done Ariel for us. He had done Aladdin. Um, the studio was very high on us trying to woo Glenn to do Silver because at that time he was in Paris working on, uh, he worked on Tarzan there. It was very expensive for the studio to support Glenn and his family living in Paris for a few years. And they were like, talk him into coming back. <laughs> and so we, we pitched it, and he loved the idea. You know, this idea of this character, is he a good guy, is he a bad guy? He's a combination of CG and 2D. Uh, the film revolves around him, he's complex. All of that was enormously appealing to Glenn, and it wasn't too hard to sell to get him to come back from Paris to do that. But all those things were sort of in, in development as we as we were trying to get the film off the ground. Yeah, it, it, before that, um, background paintings, um, uh, well, I, I think Deep, Deep Canvas reinvented back background paintings and that um, people painted digitally. I mean, they had not painted digitally before that. Uh, yeah, with, with Treasure Planet, one of the first things we did was have uh, all the background painters doing sort of knockoffs of N.C. Wyatt um, digitally so they, that they could learn how to paint digitally because before that they had just painted with, with real paint, brush and paint. Um, this allowed us, I mean, oils are very difficult. They'd always been difficult to do in animation because they take forever to dry and they don't smell good. Um, so digitally you can paint, you can do oil painting and, and you don't have those problems. So, um, so they did a great job actually mimicking NCY in oils. Uh, they had used oils on Bambi, but they had not used oils since Bambi, I think in the background department. Uh, we, we also had a character that was totally CG, a robot. Uh, ben, um, who um, so 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 it was definitely um, um, a cyborg movie. It was a hybrid movie, which was interesting. Um, the idea that it was mixing CG. I think possibly Tom and, and and Peter early on wanted us to do it all CG. Well, at one point, yeah, that was because um, they they were working on the movie Dinosaur and they had built up a whole crew to do Dinosaur. And then they were going to be done, and they had nothing to go on to. And they're like, "Let's do Treasure Planet all CG." And we considered it briefly, but at least at the time, CG animation of human characters seemed not. It didn't reach where it's gotten to today. Mm. So we just felt like it might not work so well to have CG. And even the idea of this cyborg, in some ways, we liked 
the mixture of hand-drawn and CG is a blending of those worlds. So we resisted that, and they didn't push us that hard on it. They just it would have made their lives easier because they had all these people that were going to be out of work, you know, in a month. They're like, do it all CG, and we considered it and said no. But if I mean, I'm thinking if we if we. I mean, narratives of, of Disney animation about the way it's progressively integrated digital technologies or let's say computer-aided production in all kinds of ways. And I'd never thought about the, the smell, the smell of the digital. It doesn't smell because it's not the same. Um, but I was thinking about, you know, the trajectory of that kind of computer-aided production is something that is also, you know, specific to the films that I mentioned at the start. So I, one of my favourite scenes as the, you know, as the animation person, I guess, is the whirring cogs of Big Ben in Basil the Great Mouse Detective, that whole kind of sequence. Uh, and of course, you mentioned that the the different way of moving the camera, um, and there are certain shots, I think, in Treasure Planet, um, mostly, I think, below deck, a lot of the, the kind of sequences. I, I mean, I counted for the supernova, the the sort of mutiny on board, um, retrieving the map, and then a sort of the, the climax, if you like, the kind of exploding booby-trapped treasure planet. Um, a lot of the sort of retrieving the map sequence has some kind of interesting POV or shots where a character, in this in that case, Jim, is kind of moving below decks. Uh, and, and I was thinking back to kind of both the Cave of Wonders, but also the magic carpet ride. And then, of course, jumping ahead to, to, to Hercules and the sort of... Um, battle between Hercules and that multi-headed monster Hydra and so you, you I've just throughout your career you've sort of dipped your toe into these sorts of digital objects and sequences and it seems like Treasure Planet was was kind of an not an, not an improvement but but an, uh, a logical step in some ways um, because of the industry the industry that you were describing I mean were you it sounds like you were conscious of, of animation as a medium being that or, or currently at that point so 2000 I mean, 95 onwards with Toy Story, but kind of 2000, turn of the millennium, the sort of shift from from pencil to pixel, if you like. So that was really yeah. coming to bear on your decisions too. Right. And, and it wasn't just us, I think. It was a progression throughout each mm. Disney film at that time. Yeah. Beauty and the Beast, the, the ballroom sequence of mm. Beauty and the Beast, um, nothing like that. But then Lion King, the Wildebeest stampede. Um, so I think there was always a sense with each new film, um, how can we break some new ground? How can we innovate this new and I think management actually even was supportive of that because they saw that almost as a part of the marketing of the film that mm -hmm. you can say, you know, this was done in a way that was never done before. There's something new that you haven't seen. So it made sense from both points of it just as an artistic challenge and a, another tool to use to tell the story uh, and also a way to say this movie has something that you haven't seen before. Come see it. You know, so it was, it was both those things. And for us, yeah, we... We, we worked with people who were more up on these techniques than we were, really. And they would come to us like on Great Mouse Detective and really try and sell us on the idea of let's build it in the computer, which was very novel at the time. So Mike Perez and Phil Nibelink, they sort of came to us and said, we can do it. And they showed us a little test of a few gears and we're like, yeah, that's cool. Let's do it. And we had to sell some other people on doing it. And that, that happened throughout all these films, really. We just looked at ways of, uh, you know, with the, and with the carpet in Aladdin where we could texture map that, you know, and hand-drawn animation but texture map this on and get a result that wasn't we would never afford to try and do in hand-drawn so so we that was part of what we we've always enjoyed that i think and so it was certainly this film was made to expand on that whole idea because we like we say we wanted to really get the richness and uh warmth of hand-drawn animation but combined with the the visceral quality of you know being able to move through these environments and as well as building like silver cyborg arm, we really mm. 
uh, you know, he's sort of a digital genie in a way, but I mean, he's kind of, you know, he can do lots of things with his arm and, and uh, it was fun developing those things. And Glenn would sort of rough those things out. And then Eric Daniels, his partner in that would go and he, had, he and his team would take the arm or the leg or the eye or whatever it might be and really have to sort of uh, make it work in a CG role and then integrate the two together. We're going to ask about Long John uh, Silver, actually, because it struck me that character was a really clever way of, of updating both the sort of the, the, the character of, of the sort of one art, the one legged man and that this sort of quintessential pirate, but also doing something very interesting in terms of the sort of representational politics of it in that, uh, you know, that's another lens through us academics like to look through that sort of back catalog of, of Disney. But what you've got there is you've taken a character who is, you know, in the, on the page is kind of really complex in the way that that kind of disability is described. On one level, it's a source of power and it's a source of sort of, you know, strength. And on another level, it's kind of, you know, the novel, you know, kind of pushes back at it. And what you do is you turn it into this, um, you know, force of, 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 you know, quite overt power. There's no there's no disability in the in the in the John Silver character in Treasure Planet. He, he, it's a it's a it's an extraordinary power he has. Yeah. Yeah, that is an interesting thing because, yeah, in Stevenson's novel, perhaps you get a little bit more of a feeling of, like, as you say, his disability and almost like the way, like, you know, if you get these people that play uh, Paralympics or, you know, these wheelchair people where they've got this great, you know, upper body strength, you know, because they're wheeling around these chairs. And mm. there's a feeling of that maybe even in Stevenson's novel with Silver that he's got this kind of brute power. But I don't think we ever totally thought of him as disabled as much as uh, he does. I think he does regret, obviously, there's a scene as he's looking at his cyborg arm and it's like that, and you give up a few things um, <laughs> chasing a dream, uh, which there again, yeah. the missing piece. I mean, we always, every character kind of has their missing piece and, and uh, that was a little bit underneath everything. And, and, and then they, most of them find it, uh, but not in the way necessarily they, they expect it. But but it's a it's a it's a figure. The cyborg is a figure we're we're obsessed with academics because it's so sort of, you know it's it's a it's a human, but it's beyond the human. It's you know and it's a source of spectacle and and both visually and narratively. That you know you say he's the genie. He's he can do more with it. Can you just sort of when when did you when did you decide that's where you're going to go with the character? And even in the two page treatment, I think he was described as a cyborg, right? Yeah, the idea of him having this sort of protoplasmic. Pet, pet, you know, the equivalent of a parrot, uh, but being proto a bit of protoplasm. I think it wasn't that was in your two-page yeah. treatment, I think. And Ben, Ben being a robot was in the two-page treatment. Yeah. I mean, those, those basic ideas, which was just how do you turn this, how do you take the the idea and and turn it into something sci-fi. But so Ben, Ben's changed from the novel. But so I know just from from our conversations that. Uh, and we do a thing on the podcast each week is that I have to crowbar a reference to the Wizard of Oz at some point. So this is where it's going to come, which is that ben, Ben's, Ben's the scarecrow. No, Ben needs a brain and uh, he needs and if he finds the brain, you solve the mystery. And Ben is a much more developed character than the sort of madman on the island of, of the original novel. So how did how, that that was already from the beginning as well? It's fascinating that two characters that seem so rich yeah. were there from the beginning. I think, there again, I haven't read the treatment recently. I think Ben was a malfunctioning robot. I don't think the idea necessarily that he was missing part of his, his brain, his memory circuits, I don't think was in the two-page treatment. I don't remember for sure. But certainly The Wizard of Oz, I think probably every movie we've done has, has some Wizard of Oz influence. That's just... Um, 
it was a very seminal movie for both of us, seeing it year after year on television in, in America. They ran it at the holidays and, you know, uh, just it was part of our rotation. And it's one of my favorite films still. I think it holds up really well. But, uh, yeah, there is there is that to, to Ben. And uh, originally when Ben... Uh when Ben got his his um, his memory circuits back, there was more exposition that um, that we cut, that kind of explained a little bit more um, what the planet was and, and and what Captain Flint was and kind of who who actually originally invented um, these portals. Um, so that that was there at one point. Um, some more answer to the mystery that that yeah. not in the film anymore. Well, certainly in, in, I think, writing on, on the impact of the digital on, on Hollywood on Hollywood cinema, there's, you know, and you gestured to it earlier, that the cyborg has become a really useful analogy or a useful way of thinking about that, that hybridity or that the challenge of the hybridity, or, or in, in your case, beware the cyborg, the sort of cyborgian identity to, to both, I guess, live action cinema with digital components that who, whose, whose digital appendages might be hidden or veiled or... Um, I don't know, kind of going under the surface, but certainly I think there's a lot of writing on the cyborg and and, and kind of post-humanism or the post-human figure um, in ways that have taken this figure of the cyborg and and the way it's been discussed, I think, also in terms of sort of race and the ability of the cyborg to pass and sort of to sit in between, I guess, characters, um, I guess a kind of queerness perhaps to the cyborg, but equally at a technological level, that sort of, and I guess that's really what struck me about Treasure Planet is the role that technology plays in the film. So it is a tool, and you mentioned this sort of, you know, I guess, post-deep canvas and the, the ability of, of these sorts of three-dimensional digital um, odorless realms uh, <laughs> of, 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 uh, of digital paint. Um, those sorts of, yeah, those sorts of realms of digital paint versus... Uh, a, a film like Treasure Planet, where it's a film in which there are holograms, and there, and, and so the, the the spectacle of the digital is for us as spectators, but also for the characters in the film, where where digital effects become part of the world, and actually the climax to the film being actually technology and 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 I, I guess the digital is is something that in in some cases underpins a lot of the natural imagery that we see. Actually, it's 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 the tech underneath which the film certainly in the climax yeah. is, is sort of interested yeah. in, in, in lots of ways. And so I, I, I like, I like, and my favorite shot in the film, and you mentioned this out of that kind of the crescent moon as it's revealed yeah. in that one continuous yeah. shot yeah. to be the space pot. I think that's, that's my favorite shot in the film because it's exactly, it's doing so much in terms of this is what technology can do. This is yeah. how we can kind of play yeah. in a like Trump Loy yeah. way of, you know, it's, it's Roadrunner yeah. painting the, or sorry, the Wiley Cozy right. painting the, 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 yeah, the, the tunnel, tunnel on the, on on the, the brick wall. Yeah. Yeah, the wall. Yeah. It's the um, other thing that might be interesting. I don't think it was at all conscious, but while we were making Treasure Planet, there was a bit of gloom hanging over the studio, partly because um, right. CG films were on the ascendancy, uh, you know, uh, animated CG films. And there was a question if, if hand-drawn, which had gotten more expensive in the wake of Jeffrey leaving, where there was this competition for talent, so they paid people more and more money yeah. that made the budgets go way up. The films were returning less. It was a bad combination. So there was a dark cloud. You know, is, is hand-drawn going to continue? And there was this sort of thread of CG. Now, whether any of that crept into our film in terms of our attitude toward technology in some way, I, I don't think so necessarily, but it's not totally impossible to say. It was certainly made against a backdrop of a competition of those things. There was a definite question 
um, through the making that became more and more resolved as it went along. Of what is the future of animation? I mean, the Pixar films had become hugely successful. Uh, um, Shrek, then at DreamWorks, um, yeah. like was 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 an enormous hit, um, and some of the hand drawn films were 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 not doing as well as they had as they were getting more and more expensive, um, and so um, yeah, there I think um, um, there was there was definitely wondering kind of what 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 is the future going to be, and, and we um, really liked uh, CG films, and we loved Toy Story, we loved you know, and we you know, we're fans of their work and we wanted to continue. We were hoping sort of that, you know, hand-drawn would coexist side by side with CG and they'd kind of continue to march down things. It's just like painting and sculpture. One hasn't necessarily replaced the other, but you could say, but the other thing is more like, you know, television and radio where television really, certainly in the case of radio drama or even radio comedy shows, those were definitely supplanted by television, you know, and it didn't continue. So that there was that question, you know, would hand-drawn be like that? Could it, coexist or was it going to be uh, thought of as, uh, you know, an outdated technology or an outdated way to tell a story, uh, which we, we didn't think it was, but uh, it was a question, what, what did the audience want? You know? As it ended up, I think, I think, well, I mean, you could say a lot of films are hybrid. I mean, you could say Tarzan is hybrid with Deep Candor, yeah. uh, but in terms of the technology used for Treasure Planet, where where the backgrounds were three-dimensional and, and some of the characters were hybrids. Um, I mean, really, Sinbad was the other film that really was kind of doing similar technology. And, um, yeah, I I, uh, I do remember, and I'm jumping ahead, like, um, um, to uh, to the premiere of, of Treasure Planet uh, at, the, at the Cinerama Dome in, in Hollywood, which is now in big trouble. Um, because it, of COVID, yeah. Cinerama Dome may be no more, but but the, our premiere was there, and I remember, and some of the celebrities were there, and Michael Bill, Billy Idol was there, I think. Why was Billy Idol there? I can't remember. But he was there. I don't remember. <laughs> but Martin Short was there, and I and right in the aisle, I remember Martin Short talking to Michael Eisner and and saying, you know, it's it's so incredible, it's so beautiful, and and Michael Eisner said, well, appreciate it because there's never going to be another film like that again. Um, <laughs> I mean, they had already decided um, this is not the future of animation. By the time by the time we got to the end, even before the film was released, um, um, the commitment to um, to uh, going away from hand drawn had been had been made. Right. But as you were saying, Chris, this was a unique opportunity in this film. They went back to the earliest origins that technology was a character in the movie itself. I mean, basically, you know, the uh, it had robots. It, it, it's like you took the tropes of the, the uh, story, you know, and here's a treasure map. How can we do a treasure map in a science fiction world that is just takes advantage of what would be cool, you know, and so the idea of holograms and just uh, unfolding and levels and layers and uh, was a fun thing visually for the, our art directors and our production designers to play with and for us as well. Or even silver works in the galley on a ship. What can we make this oven look like that is not hmm. a convention? you know, a normal oven that you see. And yet somehow it's sort of recognizable as an oven, but it, it really takes advantage of its its nature that way. Or, you know, the the idea of the shape-shifting uh, parrot, you know, protoplasmic thing. I have a I have my altar boy story I could tell you, which is... Uh, oh, I think you should, Joan. I, mean, I should, because I'm Catholic and I have to work this in whenever I can. But uh, when we were doing Treasure Planet, the protoplasm that we had was sort of this aqua green color as we were developing it. Morph, morph uh, with... 
Yeah, morph, morph. And so morph, morph was kind of aqua colored. And then uh, there were Irish, uh, no, English uh, choir boys that were visiting our church here in, in Los Angeles, staying with families. And we had a couple of English choir boys staying with us. And I took them on a tour of the studio. I can't remember their names now. I think it was Alex and Chris. I can't remember. But uh, took them on a tour of the studio. And, uh, and, so, and we had said to ourselves, you know, I was concerned at the time because the movie Flubber had come out with Robin Williams. It was about to come out. And it had, or it had come out. And it had this sort of aqua green gelatinous stuff, you know, that was Flubber. The way they played sure. it was pretty much the same color as what we were doing. But it was a question. Would anybody think this was just like Flubber and it would get in the way of our uniqueness? And we convinced ourselves, no, that would never happen. But when I brought the English choir boys by on the tour, I showed them a scene of Treasure Planet. And they saw a scene of Silver with uh, with Morph. And he said, oh. And I said, what, what, what is it? He said, oh, it's, it's just like Flubber, huh? You know, <laughs> ah, just like Flubber. And so I'm like, we got to change it. We got to change it. So, so f from that point on, we experimented. And he became kind of magenta. We just had to go away from the uh, Flubber color. But uh, And so we owe that to those who now, those guys are uh, whatever. They're in their... They're 30 years old now. They're maybe maybe you guys were those guys. I don't know. Did you ever sing? And, uh, I, I think uh, we'd more likely, because actually, oddly, that character Morph has an English chime of, of Morph the Ardman kind of. Well, that too. There was a question because of Nick Park and his Ardman thing, which we didn't know about when he wrote, when Ron wrote his thing. He was called Morph, I think, very early on. We didn't realize that there was a thing with with Nick Park going, we love Nick Park, but this is not meant to be uh, stealing Nick Park. The other story that uh, I feel like we, we should talk about at least a little bit at some point is uh, Emma Thompson. Uh, Emma Thompson, our Captain Amelia, we, we, we sort of envisioned her in the part very early on, but we weren't sure if we could get her, and we, we sort of approached her, and she really wanted to do it, but then there were contractual issues that she wasn't happy with at all. And we have, I think, a handwritten letter from her that she sent where she's, I so wanted to do this, and can't you do something? Because I think the pay was so lousy, whatever it was, I don't know. But ultimately, they found a middle ground with her, and she did it. And uh, and then we kind of wrote to her. But she, we recorded her in London, probably not far from where you are, Chris. But um, and so she was pregnant at the time, or well, at least through some of those sessions with her daughter, who's now probably twenty or whatever. And uh, so it was great because she could come in and she's pregnant. Although she said, you know, do you mind if I peel this off? You know, and she had like a, a shirt or a sweater or something. She's just like. A, I, she was so hot being in the studio, being pregnant and all that, the distress of all that. She said, I, I feel like a sofa. I just feel so good. But, but it was great because she was such a collaborator. When she came in to record each session, we would sit down with her and we'd kind of rewrite her dialogue with her. We had written it, you know, with her mind and put it in things that we thought would be good in her voice. But she really kind of wanted to push it. And we had talked to her, you know, you're really you're kind of like an RAF pilot, you know, and you're kind of, you know, a commander. And she she loved the idea that she could do that while she was pregnant, that she was a woman and she could be in charge of the RAF, whatever. And, uh, but she, uh, she would sit there and, you know, she would eat her crisps and that sort of thing and just kind of ruminate about the script a little bit with us. And uh, we had, I think I had a line where we talked about the pirates and I had written, uh, these are, a, it's a sorry gaggle of ragamuffins you have here. And I thought that would sound good coming out of Amazon. A sorry gaggle of ragamuffins. See, I, I like that. Yes, but what, what do you think about this? I rather fancy, a, you know, a ludicrous parcel of sniveling galoots. And we were like, that's better. That's better. And so we kind of went through and even we had a whole thing. I don't think we did it. We used the line, but even with, uh, when she saw Doppler's space suit that she thought was ridiculous, and she was like, is, is that... Is that cerise you're wearing? You know, we in, uh, I had to look up what is cerise. Oh, it means cherry colored. Okay, right. Uh, we didn't wind up using that, but she 
from top to bottom. She had very fun lines. She never actually recorded with David Hyde Pierce, but we, you know, had we knew kind of what each one was doing, and we would throw them lines that would fit with the others and all that. But uh, how how much freedom can you give your voice yeah. actors? Then it sounds like you you encourage them to improv a lot. I mean, gen- generally we, we like improv, and we encourage actors to do improv. I mean, probably the most extreme is Robin Williams in Aladdin, where where even though that part was written for Robin and in his style, obviously, or maybe it's not obvious, a great deal of that part was improvised, uh, but, but it varies. I mean, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was um, a very serious young actor and, and uh, kind of, I would say, more methody than, than, um, than a lot of the actors that we've worked with, uh, kind of intense. He, he certainly took the role very seriously. Um, uh, but he was very uncomfortable actually just working in front of a mic and not working with any other actors. And, uh, and we tried when we could to, um, to actually have sessions with he and Brian Murray together because uh, it felt like we could get a, a stronger take on their relationship. Brian Murray actually, um, a very accomplished stage actor, wasn't really comfortable with improv either. Pro- probably the ones uh, the most uh, were certainly Mark Short. Um, he comes from an improv va- background. So doing Ben, once again, that part, the part of Ben the Robot was was written with improv in mind um, for whoever would do it. And, and Martin um, really kind of invented that, that character. He was, he was he was always conceived as as a robot who had lost his mind and and was was considerably needy also because he'd been alone for a long long time. But Martin brought um, brought, brought a lot of fun um, um, to that to that part. And uh, actually, the parts of Captain Amelia and Doctor Doppler were were written both were written with uh, David Hyde Pierce and Emma Thompson in mind. That's who we um, that's who we had in our heads. But Martin and uh and David and uh, Emma all could improv in character, you know, and that's something we always like when you have an actor who's comfortable enough that they can maintain their voice, maintain the character, but can, can go off the script and do things. And, uh, and it worked differently with each one. I, David Hyde Pierce more traditionally would just throw in lines. Um, Both of us, we were struck by the line where, you know, well, I have a doctorate, but you can't help people with a doctorate and true words. <laughs> yeah. words. I think that, I think that was an ad lib from uh, David Hyde Pierce, wasn't it? An ad lib? Or? I think it was an improv. He, he was yeah, really yeah. a great, a great yeah. improviser. I think we had the Star Trek line, like we had the first part of it, where he said, "Like um, I, I'm, I'm a doctor. Well, I'm not a doctor, I bet, uh, which is a Star Trek reference, of course. A little homage um, to, uh, yeah. And he added the second part. Of it. That was. Yeah. <laughs> it's um it's interesting to hear you guys um talk about the uh the creative freedom you allow actors and i think uh it's easy for us audiences to conceive of that because in the pre-production stage there's um i guess less expense uh less animators waiting to kind of uh, scribble against what they do but um actually the more we learn from from people like yourselves the more the whole animation process seems to be much more malleable than say live action it doesn't have these sort of rigid pre-production production and post-production stages everything can be kind of um, brought backwards brought forwards um, and I know that you've talked about in interviews before the the role of something called Disney plusing um, in your work could you perhaps just explain to listeners who aren't familiar with that term what it, what it is and how it affected uh, the production of Treasure Planet? Yeah, the, the idea of Disney Plusing goes back um, almost to the beginning of the studio and working with Walt Disney, and I think started with Walt Disney, but, but certainly when I started, um, I was, and John and I, we were kind of indoctrinated with the idea that um, 
that your job isn't simply to just execute whatever you're given, but to look for ways to try to make it better, to try to make it more fun or more entertaining. And that, that applies to almost everybody working on the movie, not just the voice actors or the animators, but, uh, but everybody's encouraged um, to, uh, to try to, to make what they're doing a, a, just a little bit better and exploring options um, for, for entertainment. Um, and, um, um, and I think that's really part of, uh, what makes the D Disney film special, um, is, is that attitude. And, and, um, and certainly that's true with voice actors. We, we, uh, we, we encourage them to bring creativity into the process. It, it's like, uh, um, I guess we're not auteurs in the sense that, um, that we are the creative guys and everybody else is, is just kind of executing our vision. We want people to funnel as much of their creativity as possible into the movie. Uh, we're kind of a filter uh, in, in the sense that, um, there again, uh, a lot of times people will have ideas and, and for whatever reason will feel like that doesn't really work, it doesn't really support the story, or it doesn't really support the character, so we don't do that. But then if there's an idea that we really like and we think that's better, that, that, really, um, that really pluses uh, the situation, yeah, we'll use it. Um, and that makes the the um, the voice actor, the animator, or whoever it is, also more invested in the whole process, because because they they feel like they put more of themselves into it. So I think it works all the all the way around for the good of the film. Can you can you think of any examples off the top of head of of little embellishments in the movie that are a result of that plussing? Process? This this isn't a really good example, but it's sort of a fun story. Is um, uh, we were really happy to get Patrick McGowan to do to do the the voice of Billy Bones, um, who's the the old alien at the beginning of the movie, who 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 gives Jim the treasure map, and um, and and we remember Patrick McGowan going all the way back to the Prisoner, and um, and the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh for Disney, and so many other things that that he's done. Secret Agent Man, uh, part of our growing up, and uh, but when he came in. Um, he had a very he he, um, he was congested and and he had a he had a, a really um, he was coughing yeah. a lot and and um, and we encouraged him to do that because it, it worked for the part and and the wheezing and the coughing and and it, it brought it, it actually brought more to that role uh, than than we originally intended. I mean, there's so many examples. It's, it's tough to come up with with um, a, a specific one. Certainly, um, um, uh, the what, with the whole big master shot of the spaceport when we move into the spaceport uh, sure. for the first time. A lot of ideas in that came from all from all uh, all over the place in terms of just trying to really make that shot as cool as we could possibly make it. Um, I mean, Glenn Keane, um, he he. Uh, he certainly, and Glenn brings all kinds of ideas in terms of um, the sort of montage sequence where Silver and Jim go out and and uh, um, on their own and kind of a joyride and they, they get in the tail of a comet. Uh, Glenn, uh, Glenn uh, brought a lot of ideas to that. Um, uh, that that whole sequence, and, and and certainly when when Silver is in the galley um, with his mechanical arm showing off all the uh, kind of amazing things he can do. Yeah, I think the development of the whole spaceport shot, that one that you described, Chris, it was your favorite thing. That was plussed all the way up and down the line by all the people that touched it. Where they, uh, Peter Clark did some development art on it. I think that really helped realize it as a 
this is what it might actually look like. And then uh, Kyle Odermatt was in charge of the CG and how can we really get the camera to move in the, in the ship to sort of, uh, what's the path it's going to take into camera and away from camera and, and, uh, and then the animation that's tied into that, every step on that shot. And, and even the idea of the solar, the way the solar sails lit up, Frank Nissen was the guy who storyboarded that. That was Ron, Ron and I divided the movie into sequences, and that was one of his sequences where the, uh, the, sh the ship energizes and, and is going to launch. And, but Frank did this great job of uh, staging that and with the, the idea of the solar sails sort of lighting up and all that. It, it, uh, a lot of the staging ideas and things like that came from Frank Nissen's boards where he really uh, plus what was written in the script and really made it something special. I um I think we 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 well we definitely could keep you here all day, but we won't because that would be uh, an act of rudeness that our British identity wouldn't allow. But um I guess we should try to get to the end of the story. So you know obviously the film comes out, and this is a film we've been working on in ages. And sometimes you know the finances don't quite match um what one hopes. Now you know as academics we don't, that's the last thing we care about in terms of um uh in terms of our it wasn't the first thing we cared but, about. We definitely cared yeah. about it. So. It was quite a blow and it came out and uh, hadn't done well on its opening weekend, but even more so when the company decided very quickly, we're going to, we're going to write this movie off and we're going to announce it to the public. It's like, you're really killing this movie. We did find that we got caught. Uh, I mean, the, the reasons for its, its lack of success, there are many. One of the things that happened while we were even working on the film, uh, we previewed the film and it was right around the time of 9-11 in the U.S. And suddenly we realized we've got a film with people with sharp objects that are taking over a ship they're mutinying on a ship and you know it had its analogies to the current thing and and even when we were there in the preview uh, here we are in a preview audience and we do this on all the films you know we show them before they're done to a, a, a families and then to all adults and that sort of thing but we had this family audience and we could see as they were filing in all these little girls and their moms and everything we thought i don't know if it's going to quite you know cross over and it seemed like it, it didn't totally and uh we knew we, it was a challenge to sort of sell it to that audience. Uh, I mean, it was a tough period. It was a very tough period um, in terms of that, because the film, it's a little dark, um, and sometimes you, you go for that, and sometimes people are, are ready for something that's a little dark, and sometimes they're definitely not. It didn't feel like it was the right film for the right time or, or that it was going to reach the right audience. I'd say probably the ideal audience for it and the best reception it got was from teenage boys. Um, but that was probably the toughest audience to really get to at, at the time to go see the movie. Um, at the same time, I would have to say, I feel like the, the, the studio did not support the film um, the way it could have. I mean, I think ultimately the film would not have been a hit at the time, no matter what, that it was just kind of the wrong film at the wrong time. But at the same time, the studio um, could have done more. It didn't have to be the kind of um, sort of um, legendary disaster that it, it turned out to be. I, um, I, I think some of that, there, there were reasons. There was a lot going on at the studio at the time. Um, not everybody knows all the story behind it. Um, Sometimes people will point to Treasure Planet kind of as the demise of hand-drawn animation at Disney, which I feel really bad about because I, I love hand-drawn animation. And, and, but, at, at the, but at the same time, I know that that's the decision to, um, to go CG and to um, stop doing hand-drawn animation was made um, quite a while before Treasure Planet came out, that that commitment was made. And, and a year 
a year, the last year of production of the film was really rough because everybody knew that um, the um, um, the studio had 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 announced that um, the hand drawn films were not performing the way they needed to. There were severe salary cuts. There were layoffs. People working on the film for the last year kind of knew that a lot of those people were not were going to be laid off at the end of production, and their salaries were cut during production. And all that doesn't really stir morale up into a really high place. And yet people cared about the movie. They still persevered. Um, everybody worked really hard and we got the movie done. There are some things I've seen that imply the film uh, was kind of out of control and went over budget, uh, which is not true. It had a very high budget. It, it had that from the beginning. The budget was high with what we were doing with combining CG and hand-drawn animation. That was expensive. Um, but at the same time, the film came in significantly under budget, and that was because we had to, because um, um, we were ordered to, and, and it was just through good planning, and, and our, our producer Roy Conley and, and uh, production manager Peter Delvecco worked really hard to make sure we could get what we needed to get um, under those kind of very difficult uh, circumstances. The, the, other, the other thing that's in the backdrop of the film is that at this point, Michael Eisner and Roy Disney were not getting along. There was definite conflicts between the two of them. And Roy was upset with a lot of decisions that Michael was making and felt that he was kind of going off the rails and wasn't doing a good job of running the studio. And uh, and conversely, Michael was angry at Roy for you know not supporting him as the the grand poobah of you know the board of directors and all that sort of thing. So when Treasure Planet came out, it seems to us at least that. Michael Eisner saw an opportunity to lay this at Disney at Roy Disney's door. See, this is this was his baby, and it didn't work, and it's going to lose money. Listen to me, as opposed to him, because I, you know. So um, it was, I think, a big blow to all of us that the fact that um, the first weekend, the opening weekend of the film, uh, when it opened, uh, that Monday after the opening weekend, the studio very publicly announced that they were writing the film off. They were basically saying, this film is done. It's uh, it's a failure and, and nothing could save it. And that was unprecedented. I think it's still kind of unprecedented to do that at that time, that early before the film had really even had a chance. Um, and, and also that Monday morning, the same time that there was that announcement of the write-off in the LA Times, um, on the front page of the LA Times, there was a big article um, about the film and, uh, and about John and I and kind of, uh, the implication of the article was, was that we, we kind of um, forced this movie <laughs> onto Disney, like almost like an extortion thing that we, we forced um, them to make the film, which is not true. As I said earlier, Michael Eisner wanted to make the film. He, he, he used that as an enticement to get us um, to, uh, to stay at the studio. But that article also came down hard on Roy, who was a supporter of the film and a supporter of hand-drawn animation. Um, so in a certain way, I feel like, um, they once it was clear to the studio that the film was not going to be successful they kind of used it um against roy um and also as a justification for the decision that had already been made to uh, to commit to cg and to um to sort of lay off all these people that had worked at disney for so many years um so that's tough um uh and and um it was really tough for John and I because the film, um, 
um, it got so much attention, the fact that it was written off. Um, obviously, a lot of people, most people did not go see the movie because the movie did not, not open well. But everyone knew about the movie. They knew about it because of the press and because it was on CNN. It was in newspaper. It was all over. It was like, um, it was like a, a one of these films like Ishtar or, or um, Heaven's Gate. I mean, it was kind of the Heaven's Gate of, of animation. And obviously, and we, uh, John and I are kind of in this position that, uh, yeah, um, um, and we're kind of the guys um, responsible, which we were, absolutely. And we loved the film. We wanted to make the film, absolutely. And, um, and we're proud of the film, really proud of the film and proud of the work people did. But yeah, I, I would have to say that was probably the roughest, career-wise, that was the roughest thing I, I, I ever had gone through in terms of the, the 45 years I, I, I worked at Disney. It was not fun. We did, we did get a very nice letter from uh, Bob Gale, the writing partner of Bob Zemeckis, who uh, uh, really, really loved the movie and just wrote a long thing talking about it. And, you know, and we know people certainly of a certain age right now, there's almost like a a lot of people, you know, 20s, early 30s, whatever, who saw it as kids and connected to it, connected to the story in some fashion. And and I, when I do these, you know, I talk at different universities or this and that, it seems like I definitely run into the cult of Treasure Planet where people really are, they cosplay as Captain Amelia at these conventions and things like that. It's fun to see it maintaining sort of a, a semblance of a life outside, despite its, its uh, sorry performance at the box office back in the day. Um, so that's that's fun, and then we still both really like the movie. I'd say you know we still we don't think of it as we, we acknowledge that it didn't do well, but we still it was difficult to make, and there's so much great work in it, and the people that worked on it, we really love what they did. So it it is a warm spot for us, I think, despite its uh, financial misfortunes. I suppose we're at the position now where we're looking back on this film almost 20, 20 years later. And, and a lot of things that, that you've said, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, it's interesting that you talk about the audience for the film, the potential audience for the film, the, the, the sort of young girls versus young boys. And, it, and it's only eight years later and Tangled is released where there's a real shift industrially towards a film that's you know, trying to embrace a different kind of, of audience. It also, what from what you've said about Treasure Planet, seems to entirely fit with the sort of general cultural consensus of what we think, certainly from an academic perspective and, and, and evidently from what you say, about what that period of Disney was like, the sort of tumultuous stuff that was going on set against a broader backdrop of, of the rise or the acceleration of computer animated films. I suppose... On the same time, Treasure Planet seems seems kind of good business sense if you think about all the late 90s science fiction films that are there making the most of all this kind of digital technology. So surely a film, you know, ostensibly a space fantasy is, is the perfect film with which to, to test that, one, to capitalise on some of the generic currents in Hollywood at the time, but equally to, to kind of test out certain kinds of, of effects of effects imagery. Um yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I um, yeah, I'm I'm writing a book actually about um, about my 45 years at Disney that that's going to be come out in uh, I think in about a year and a half. Um, um, but certainly, um, as rough as Treasure Planet was to go through in terms of the end of a second act structure, it it it, it serves a <laughs> purpose really well because in every movie i think i'm not every movie obviously but i think in most of our movies and it is kind of a structural three-act structural uh, plot point is um 
the end of the second act is always your all is lost moment. Um, um, all, and, and, and it kind of felt that way for us. Um, although I would say uh, there were two things, there were two good things that happened that I should mention. One was that we got an Academy Award nomination uh, for, uh, for Best Animated Film, which was totally unexpected. The studio was not prepared for that after all they had done. Um, and, and they had not done any support in terms of trying to really, really make that happen. And, and so I, I was proud of the fact that the Academy um, sort of ignored all the bad press and everything else and just watched the film on its own merit and, and, and gave it that nomination. Uh, also, I remember that Joe Grant, um, Disney veteran uh, who was in his 90s at the time and still working at the studio, kind of help, helping on the movies, um, talked about um, movies like Pinocchio and, and Fantasia and even Bambi, that, that, um, which are now um, all part of this incredible golden age and yet were not financially successful. Um, um, particularly, I think Fantasia was, 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 uh, very rough for the studio and, and, uh, and, uh, Snow White was a huge success, but the following films, in spite of their artistic excellence, uh, were not big hits. So, so the studio has gone through these kinds of ups and downs uh, throughout, uh, unlike Pixar, which seems like it's generally been on, on just a kind of very, very up trajectory, but, uh, but it seems like it's a part of Disney's history, this kind of roller coaster um, that, that it, it goes through. I would say all those films that we, we made, uh, our guide really on all of them was, no, we wanted to make a film that we wanted to see. I mean, we really never really thought about the audience that much in a way. I mean, we did just in terms of communicating. It's got to communicate to people that are only going to see this film and they're not going to get an explanation of it. You got to make the movie read and be clear and be engaging and emotional, all that. But but we didn't work backwards from the most. So for us, you know, Treasure Planet was a movie we wanted to see. We loved the idea of this retro science fiction -y thing somehow with this Disney patina and all that, just as we loved, you know, on... Uh, Princess and the Frog doing this sort of New Orleans thing and being able to use jazz and, and that, that whole meal and having an African-American heroine. Uh, they just seemed to us, that's a movie we would want to go see. So that was really our, our um, measuring stick, as it were. I get the impression from what from them the way that you've spoken about the film and and also given the other films that you've that you've worked on and the perhaps you mentioned earlier the sort of pressures for a film like Treasure Planet to and you said you thought about it potentially being CG but then then didn't um and it seems to fit with a a, a general narrative of of at that point we computer animated films looked like a certain thing they didn't look like the kinds of films that princess and the frog were it's it's a genre thing as much as anything else that that computer animated films are kind of the high techy final final fantasy is the year before this um whereas with with the princess and the frog it, it looks the same as other disney films and it feels in its tone and its narrative and so there's a kind of broader generic element here but i get the impression that it's treasure planet's not often a film that you talk about or because people are often you know i imagine focused on aladdin and and uh to, i guess to a lesser extent hercules but but i'm just and princess and the frog and moana i know alex absolutely loves moana um but it seems like treasure planet is is kind of you know quite special to you in in the way that you talk about it have either of you two rewatched the film recently yeah, I've seen the film, um, and I've seen it with an audience uh, uh, during when Moana was released in 2016 at the El Capitan Theater 
um, in Hollywood. Um, they had actually, which was a kind of retrospective of the films of John and I, and they showed all of them, starting with Great Mouse Detective um, up to Moana, um, ending with The Princess and the Frog, preceding the, the release of Moana with an audience um, and, and fans who, who came to see the movie in a theater. And, and it's always fun to see movies in theaters. <laughs> that's Certainly, I hope movies will continue to be shown in theaters because uh, that's really all the movies I think we did are, are designed best to be, to be um, um, uh, seen in, in theaters. And, and uh, so I saw Treasure Planet and, and, and um, I still love the movie. And all of these things, any of the movies are kind of fun to see again um, because... Um, they usually are four, sometimes even five years of your life in those movies. So they bring back all kinds of memories that aren't on the screen. Uh, you remember the people, you remember um, the difficulties, you remember scenes that that um, were a struggle and 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 breakthroughs and achievements. Um, but but um, but yeah, I I um, I have very warm feelings toward the movie, and and it's pretty much um, I would say. I mean, it's the, you always kind of revisit in your mind and think, is there something we could have done? Is there something um, that, that could have made things go differently? And who knows, there might have been. But, um, but I still love the movie, and, um, and I'm still so proud of, of the work that, that everybody did on it. And, um, and uh, I'm glad that, um, that there is, uh, I'd say, a very strong sort of cult audience for the movie and I hear that all the time and that's fun that's good that's good to hear it's good to know that that at least for some people the film worked the way we wanted it to work and and and, and had the effect we wanted to have and and um and I'm proud of that John and I have had kind we've we've had the experience of success um and we've had the experience of failure and and um I think there's something good about both um they um um they help you. They 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 make you better. Um, um, so so yeah. It, all in all, I look back very very fondly on the film. Mm. Well, Ron and John, thank you. I mean, you've been you've been more than generous. You've been ridiculous with your time. It's been really an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, and you know, viewers, check out Treasure Planet. It's a, it's a wonderful wonderful film, and and we will continue to sing its praises. Um, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Great, yeah. Glad, glad to do it, and, and good luck. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Doc Holiday. We appreciate it. If you enjoyed our conversation with Ron and John, why not check out the podcast archive, which is available on fantasy-animation.org, as well as through all the usual podcast subscription services. We have podcast interviews with uh, animators, VFX artists, folklorists, academics, all discussing the wide uh, and exciting world of fantasy animation, just like we've done on this episode. There's also a blog, available on the same website, which is published weekly um, and provides you with the latest uh, information on all things um, fantastical, drawn, sculpted uh, and imagined. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Reddit at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. Why not let us know what you thought of this episode and what you think of Treasure Planet overall. Um, we'll be delighted to talk to you on there. But for now, that's been us for another episode and we uh, will see you next time. Bye.